This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness, broadcasting from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. I'm Barbara Ramirez. Tonight, we focus on the importance of free community PCR testing sites in New Mexico. It has been announced that the PCR testing company Curative will conclude its testing services nationwide at the end of December. You might be asking, what is the difference between a PCR test and an at-home antigen test? Which one is more effective? Tonight, we hear from NetMedical, a private company that provides PCR and other testing. Dick Kobatsky, CEO, and Rafael Rubio, president of NetMedical, join us to help us understand more about PCR testing. Also this evening, we hear from Luis Peña from Rio Arriba County, who started a petition to extend community testing at no cost. Here to help us understand more about testing and how their private company operates is CEO Dick Gobotsky and President Rafael Rubio of Net Medical, speaking with Generation Justice's Roberta Rael. This is Roberta Rael, and I am with Generation Justice. This evening, I'm speaking with Dick Gavinsky, who is the Chief Executive Officer, Chairman, and Founding Member of Net Medical. And also with us this evening is Rafael Rubio, president of Net Medical, who holds a degree in physics from New Mexico State University. Welcome to Generation Justice. Thanks very much, uh, Roberta. Glad to be with you. So I would like to invite both of you to tell us just a little bit more about yourselves. And we can start with you, Dick. Okay. Well, I started Net Medical about 26 years ago. Uh, here in Albuquerque. We are a homegrown operation uh, through and thin, uh, and uh, we have uh, approximately 40 employees. Uh, uh, we have uh, spent uh, most of our time with telemedicine development uh, for very specialized uh, neurology and neurosurgery and cardiology cases at 28 hospitals uh, throughout the state. We, we provide uh, services for emergency room technicians to be able to treat a patient that needs a specialty where they don't have one, treating strokes, seizures, things of that sort, where they're not you know, fully trained on that. They may have had a couple of weeks training in, in college uh, for uh, becoming a doctor, but we have the specialists and we partner with the University of New Mexico on a program that's called Access. That's one of our, our big programs. We also are a medical laboratory and uh, we've set this up during the uh, COVID uh, uh, situation, the pandemic. And we also do uh, FDA clinical trials, clinical trials for different types of medical devices, different types of testing that, that is being uh, presented uh, for certification by the FDA, that type of thing. And, and so that's the, that's the background of Net Medical. And uh, I, I started that when I left New York City and came out here uh, to the desert uh, 25 years ago. So uh, that's, that's, uh, that's my background. Thank you so much, Dick. I appreciate hearing that. Rafael, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. Yeah, uh, after I graduated 
uh, from New Mexico State University. I spent some time in gas pipeline engineering and automation engineering in the semiconductor field. And then I came to work for uh, Dick Gavatsky in uh, 1999. And I've been there ever since. I was a technology guy, started as a, as a programmer and uh, worked my way up over the years to where I am now as president of the company. And I've, I've seen a lot of stuff in the technology field as it relates to medicine since then. And we went through uh, FDA uh, clearances for our own software when we were focusing on imaging. That imaging was done for mobile radiology for a lot of tuberculosis screening, which is um, how we get to now, right? The short version of how we get to having our own lab and running our software for, for doing COVID testing because the overlap between TB screening and preventing respiratory outbreaks for that and what it was needed for COVID was, uh, was very high, a lot of overlap there. So we were able to do that and we were able to get tests uh, you know, from the, the federal government through the state and start a laboratory here and, and, and here we are. We're, we're a lot further down the road. We're now a, it's called a CLIA moderate uh, complexity lab. And uh, we're been, we've been servicing uh, New Mexico for, uh, for the entirety of the pandemic. So Rafael, tell us a little bit more about how Net Medical has been servicing New Mexico through the pandemic. Well, it started when we recognized a, a, a bit of a, let's call it an inefficiency in, between, say, the federal and the state governments. Uh, we recognized that the, the previous administration was going to provide all of the states with antigen tests. So our state received over 600,000 antigen tests uh, that were given to New Mexico to be distributed here. But um, it, it's fair to say that there wasn't really a plan surrounding what would happen with those tests. So we realized that it would be a first come first serve basis on if you could get access to these tests and you had the software background and you had the people, then you could quickly stand up laboratory services in the state and get started with antigen testing. And that was the beginning of our path back in the, in the, in the early days we were able to do that. And from there, we were able to grow into bigger units. We realized that there was not only the availability of antigen testing, but a lot of PCR testing was also available. You could stand those up as long as you kept, you had a lab director and you kept with the, the paperwork and the quality systems. You could build a service here in New Mexico that would give our people the ability to get tests of all different quality and all different calibers. Yeah. Along those same lines, I'm curious, um, as you started doing both antigen testing as well as PCR testing, who, who was receiving the testing? Who did you serve? Okay, well, early on, we decided uh, with uh, the testing, we needed to have a location or multiple locations uh, to serve as many people as we could. We, we felt uh, a kinship to the community to help people uh, to be able to uh, service because we're all in one community here. And so community testing is, is extremely important. That's how we got started. And we then decided that we would buy a fleet of mobile vans for which we equipped them with everything from generators for electricity uh, to uh, first responder status where we can be able to provide communications throughout the state so we can connect to our computers to transmit data information. We have special 
medical refrigerators in the vans that keep the samples that we collect uh, at the proper temperature. And so we we built this up and we're continuing to build the number of medical vans and uh, we're, we're making an investment uh, to be able to provide that so that they can travel to different parts of the state and be able to uh, cover um, community testing in, in all parts of the state. So far, it's been close to 40,000 patients just this year. It's been quite a bit. Thank you so much for that, Dick. I appreciate that information. And, and speaking of which, we do know that uh, Curative, which was one of those other companies that was doing PCR testing out of also mobile units, is shutting their doors in New Mexico. In some places of New Mexico, maybe have already left, but probably won't be with New Mexico. Uh, and I believe Curative is a national company. There were uh, Curatives in different states. They, they all seem to be shutting down. So Curative was a company that had some contracting agreement with the New Mexico Department of Health. And I'm curious about Net Medical, if you all also have a relationship with the New Mexico Department of Health to do this very important community testing as, as you've spoken about. Yes, we do have a relationship uh, and a very good relationship, by the way, I must add, uh, with the uh, Department of Health, who is very, very supportive of what we do. I think that one of the things that people should understand on community testing and the program that was set up is that the federal government provided New Mexico uh, through FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management System, money to be able to provide free testing uh, for the state. And our contract stated that we could be able to take our vans to places like uh, uh, schools, uh, you know, different different areas of the, of the state. So the contract that we had uh, was a, a very interesting one. And if you'd like, I can explain how it worked. Uh, because what happened is that the state said that you needed to test people and everybody in the state should be tested for free. So one of the ways we did that was that uh, we weren't going to put the whole burden on the state um, or the federal government. So what we did is we um, build insurance companies uh, without a copay at that time. Uh, and what happened is if the insurance company didn't pay uh, for the cost of the tests and the operations and so forth, uh, we went to HRSA, um, the Health Resources Services Administration, which basically covered um, uninsured people through March of this year, and then that program stopped. So then what we had was a what's called a backstop contract with the state of New Mexico using FEMA funds, they would pay a, a small fraction of what it normally would cost to uh, to do that so that we didn't lose money on the uninsured um, by you know paying our lab technicians and, and overhead to uh, uh, the equipment manufacturers and the supplies that we would get some money back. Um, that worked up until November 15th. And at that point, we had to get a renewed contract, which included the homeless shelters and encampments, okay? Uh, 
And no, November 15th, uh, that was the end of the contract. So right now we're testing people who don't have um, um, insurance um, as well as people with insurance. And we're not getting anything for the uninsured uh, program. Okay. We hope that this contract will be renewed for certainly uh, the homeless shelters, which is extremely important um, throughout the state. And that is the intention, I believe, that the state government and um, Governor Grisham is, is, is looking to do. Uh, so we feel that, that that is going to be renewed. Uh, however, um, it's our understanding, and I guess there's going to be an announcement soon, uh, that um, uh, the community testing may um, dissolve to not being covered. And that is where we are looking at how are we going to provide the uninsured mostly, how are we going to provide them with the coverage that they need to have? Um, if they don't have insurance, that means that there's a reason for it. Uh, they're using their funds for other things. And so what we did is we came up with a program where they can pay for the visit, uh, the cover the visit for the lab technicians of $30. And then we will be able to provide them with uh, the antigen test at no cost. So they're, they're, therefore, they'll still be able to use the antigen test uh, for that portion. But if they want additional tests to determine uh, COVID, uh, influenza A or B or uh, RSV, uh, that is going to cost a little bit more uh, to cover our cost of acquiring those uh, uh, type of tests from the uh, manufacturers. So that's how that's how the contract worked. It's called a backstop contract, but it was led by the insurance companies, then followed by HRSA, and then the state backed it up. Thank you. I'd like to have you talk now, Rafael, about the antigen COVID test versus the PCR test. And what's the difference and how do both of those work? Sure, uh, I could do a deep dive on that. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to keep it, I'll keep it simple. So what we're calling an antigen test right now is really a lateral flow assay, right? It's a flat strip of paper that you can uh, take a sample and mix it with uh, some liquid and you can put some drops on the paper and the, the liquid will flow across the assay and it will give you a line like a pregnancy test uh, for, for whether you're positive or negative and a control line to let you know that you ran the test the way you were supposed to. And that's what we're calling at home. And everyone started calling that antigen testing, which is, it's a strange name, but it, you know, well, I'll stick with it. Uh, it is, let's say it is unamplified. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, the amount of material that you put on the little swab is the amount of material that it has to draw a line with, essentially. So the more you have, the faster you get a line. And if you don't have enough, then you don't get a line. And, and we would see that as a negative uh, test. And if you have enough, it's a positive test. PCR is a mind-blowingly advanced technology that is now available in many places, right? It actually works at the RNA level. In other words, the molecules inside of the cells that were inside of the virus. So it takes a strip of that and it amplifies it, literally it doubles it. It grows it in a, in a heat chamber by heating and cooling and heating and cooling. And it, it does this 
what they call reverse transcriptase polymer chain reaction. That's RT-PCR. And all that is just a bunch of fancy words for uh, multiplies whatever sample you had to a point where we can tell what was actually in it. So if you have a teeny tiny bit of virus, it can amplify it to the point where it's like, hey, that thing that's growing inside you right now, that's SARS-CoV-2. That's the virus that causes COVID-19. So, so this, the PCR testing that it's now known as is extremely sensitive in its ability to detect uh, the, the virus, right? And now I got to be very careful uh, because there's, there's really two things, right? Detecting the virus could mean that you detected an infection and it could mean that you detected an exposure, right? Uh, PCR has been called the gold standard of uh, COVID-19 infection testing, which is true to a certain extent, uh, but you could also, because of the sensitivity, you could also get positives that were just because you had some residual virus uh, that you were exposed to, right? So, so PCR is that sensitive, right? So there's pluses and minuses to both types of testing. Early on, when we got our antigen tests initially from the, from the federal government and through the state government, they were not as sensitive, right, as the PCR tests. And I'll go into that a little bit more. But at a time when you were trying to control the spread, this was before it was everywhere, right? We were trying to control the spread. It was the only tool in the toolbox that we had to know if somebody was shedding virus. Because if you were positive on an antigen test, it was the only thing we had as, as just as common people to let us know that we could possibly be infectious. The science has you know, moved on a little bit since then. We now know that two days before and two days after symptoms start, you are the most infectious. In other words, you're producing the most virus at that time. And you should be able to detect that on an antigen test. But we've also seen variations in the virus that have made it so that the antigen tests are not as sensitive as against the new variations as they were against the what, what we call the wild type viral uh, strain, if you will. Um, so you put together the mutating virus and you put together the, the decreased sensitivity of the antigen tests, you get to the point where the FDA says, hey, if the tests can't detect it on the first try, what kind of data can we get on trying this in a serial testing strategy? So if you have 70% sensitivity and you test two times in a row, what do those numbers look like? And it turns out that they're better. There's a, there's a big study out of, I think, the University of Massachusetts that the FDA has depended on to come up with their guidance on how antigen testing should be performed in order to guarantee the detection of an infection, right? Not necessarily an exposure, but an infection. And that's their rule, right? The FDA is saying now you need two antigen tests and they have to be 48 hours apart if you are symptomatic. If you are not symptomatic, you need three antigen tests, each one of those spaced 48 hours apart over, that would be essentially five days of testing in order to detect if, if you were positive. And, and, and I assume that on any one of those, if it's positive, then you are positive. But you're talking about a five-day window for doing the job of what PCR could have done 
in, in a single test, right? Um, and now on top of that, the PCR tests have gone further into the future now. The PCR tests, are they're not only detecting SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, they're detecting flu A, flu B, RSV, and then if you get really advanced and run a biofire test, that's 22 pathogens, right? That's the, all the bacteria that could be respiratory. It's a, so the, the, the technology on PCR is far outstripping what the FDA has, I guess, allowed us to have at home for the antigen tests that we can buy. And it's creating this gap in access to, to the technology that could best serve the community. Because who, who wouldn't want to know? right now if, if your, your child had RSV, right? And you're not gonna get that from an at-home antigen test. And you're definitely not gonna get that from a, a COVID antigen test. So we're, we're trying to balance all of these things. We're trying to balance the, 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 the kind of the rapidly evolving technology on the PCR side to make it available to New Mexicans while still providing access to the, the core technologies that are there and just letting people know what, what their options are and trying to make it affordable. And, and so that, that, that's really it, right? So you, you have your antigen, oh, it's, to get back on topic, you've got the antigen tests, which do one job, which they're pretty good at detecting if you're infectious and if you quarantine and stay home. And it runs a little long, you're probably not infectious seven days after, unless you have some kind of a, you know, a rebound or you have some kind of immunological condition where you keep you know, growing virus. But the FDA's guidance is three tests, 48 hours apart, if you're asymptomatic, and then that could have been done with a single PCR test early on, which is really the gating factor to get you into the one treatment still standing, which is a Paxlovid, right? We, the monoclonal antibodies have all been revoked and the other ones are essentially inaccessible for, for remdesivir and for uh, molnupiravir. Um, so, if you want access to the to the care, you 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 likely are going to need a, a confirmatory PCR test run by a CLIA lab, so a doctor can look at it and go, okay, yeah, I'm going to put that prescription on my license, and I'm going to get their history. I'm going to look at their kidney function. I'm going to make sure they can take it, and that's that's what we have. That's that's it. That's the entirety of our ability to treat COVID-19 right now. So I think I think that's it. I hope I didn't go too long on that. <laughs> no, that's excellent. I'm going to, I just want to recap a little bit and make sure that I'm understanding well. So I'm hearing you say, Rafael, that the antigen tests have evolved some, but that the PCR is still like a faster way of getting a diagnosis of COVID um, and that the window of time in order to get Paxlovid, I think it's a five, like you've got to get Paxlovid um, prescribed to you and picked up from the pharmacy in that first five days in order for it to be effective. And so if you're taking um, multiple or serial, as you mentioned, um, home tests, because they're not quite picking it up and you're not feeling well, or you have a family member who's ill with COVID, but you keep testing negative, even though you know you've shared air, um, that you might not get that window to get Paxlovid if you qualify for it. 
but also there's the possibility of people spreading the virus because they don't know that they have it because they've tested negative. That's a really good summary. I think that that hits on all the major points. And if I could, let me emphasize one of them. Uh, it's in the air, right? I don't, I don't think people are saying that enough, in the air. I think that's an incredibly important message to, to, to keep emphasizing from both the federal level you know, down through the state level that we need to get that messaging out to everyone because that message somehow has been lost. You know, I'm still seeing uh, messages for be sure to wash your hands, right? And it's like, really? Is that, is that it? But um, anyway, about the, the, the timing on the, the PCR versus antigen testing, you know, if the FDA is saying that you've got three tests across five days, then you really might miss your window right, for the Paxlovid prescription. You might miss it because you have to get all the paperwork in order for kidney function, for talking to your primary care, and it makes it, it, makes it much easier to get a PCR test to get access to that care, and that's, it's an important part of the whole testing picture. I'd like to ask a little bit now, you, you all are on the ground, you know, front line in a lot of ways. You're doing testing, you have your staff doing testing. I know New Mexico is in the red in terms of community spread at this moment, but what are you seeing um, at that ground level as you're testing? What are, what are numbers like? What are infection rates like? Well, I don't know if this would be a surprise um, because you don't hear much about the data anymore. One of the side effects of at-home testing when it was decoupled from a reporting requirement, which is exactly what happened. There is no federal reporting requirement for antigen tests at home. Uh, we worked on a project to try and get something uh, into HHS where they could use a system for reporting those requirements. And they actually built a database and there was big companies involved and it, it got pretty far down the line and then nothing happened. Um, the side effect of that is that we lost the numbers that we had. We used to have daily numbers of what the percentage positive of the community is and community transmissions for every community. And I guess if you were to ask people what the numbers look like now, I think the feeling would be that they're very low. When in reality, at, at our facility, I don't know that we ever see a day that's below 25% positivity for COVID-19. And that number has been a lot higher than that, like near 75% on a given day where, where the majority of people that come to get tested are, are positive you know, for, for, for COVID-19. Now, of course, we're a, that doesn't represent the whole population. Um, my understanding is that other illnesses that are under control, like tuberculosis, the numbers are less than one in 100,000 is the number you want to get at when you want to be, oh yeah, that's under control. That's no longer an issue. And we're nowhere near that. We're nowhere near that now. And personally, that's a problem for me because we don't understand the things we need to understand about this illness, the way we do with other illnesses. We don't know what an infectious dose of this is. We don't know the correlates of protection for the, for the virus. We don't know what makes us protected. And for sure, we don't know the long-term effects of what happens if you get it, even in a mild case. And then we don't know what are the effects if you have it and something else at the same time. 
because if, if you're running the biofire, you see for sure that there's co-infections. We're trying to manage risks though. We don't know. We just don't know. Raphael, you bring up some really good points and I'm um, curious from your perspective, um, I know you're saying we don't know so many things yet and we're exhausted. You know, we're pandemic exhausted. We're COVID exhausted. We, we, we want this to be over with, but in the life of a virus, is this still considered like an infant virus or a baby virus that there's still a lot to learn about it? Or does it match our exhaustion after three years? Well, I guess it depends who you ask, right? Um, you can listen to two equally intelligent experts give you two completely different opinions on, on what you're saying. You can listen to an infectious disease expert talk about how the patient population that they see, they no longer see any severe disease. They aren't getting called for COVID patients. And near as they can tell, it's a light disease or a light course of disease and it's over and it's done and that there's no data to support anything beyond that. And then you can talk to another equally as intelligent person that's seeing a different patient population and they're concerned. They're concerned about certain things, you know? Um, this is not my area of expertise. You know, we run, we run a, a lab, a CLIA lab, and, and there are people that are worried about what's going on with the long-term effects, right? Um, especially, you know, and, and, and I, I won't steer out of my lane, but I'll just, I'll just say that, you know, some of the people I've listened to, they've got legitimate concerns about what COVID has done and what it's going to do to our immunity for the long term and what effects it has if you have co-infections. And, and I, I got to leave it there without stepping too far out of my lane. I got to leave it right there. <laughs> the one of the things we uh, are um, blessed with uh, uh, is that we have a team of neurologists. Uh, neurologists uh, deal with things like brain fog. And uh, we also have uh, uh, people that are uh, physicians that are interested in what's called long COVID. That's where conditions occur after you've recovered, but uh, you still have that incessant cough or you've got that headache that just won't go away. Um, things of that sort that are going to be necessary to be able to be treated in the community. And that's a whole specialty by itself. And that's, that's something that I think is, is going to become more important, whether people think that the pandemic is over and we're on to other things. And then all of a sudden, three months later, another variant hits that is more complicated than the ones previous. Thank you so much for that, Dick. I really appreciate uh, you uh, bringing that forth. And I think there's a lot to learn yet about COVID as a virus. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, that the science will continue to evolve so that we know more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We just, we just need to know more and that, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping there's a, a strategy that everyone can agree on all the way up through the federal government that puts a protective tail on figuring those things out as, as we move into the future. I, I really don't want to see it being just a big experiment on the public 
you know, to, 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 to just see what happens if we're just, if we're just done with it, was that the right thing to do? Because the initial wave of mortality is over, right? The, or the big wave of mortality has ended. And, and, you know, and maybe that's, that's an, too much, maybe that's too much to ask for, <laughs> but I, I do hope that that's where we get to. There's a lot of room to do more here scientifically and, and from a laboratory perspective where I, I hope to be involved in, in doing those kind of things going into the future. Thank you. That sounds um, promising and exciting. I want to go back to you, Dick. Prior to us starting um, the interview, I believe you mentioned something about proper way to get a good sample for any testing. I think a lot of people maybe don't know that there's different ways to get samples so that you can get an accurate diagnosis. Well, that's, uh, that's absolutely true. And what's called the IFU or the instructions for use are these little tiny letters that you see in the package of tests that you buy. And um, I know from my standpoint, sometimes I'll look at it and say, I think I know how to do it, you know, and I'll just go ahead, try it, or I'll call a friend and say, hey, can you help me with this? And I think one of the things that is the best way to go is go to a professional lab, you know, go, go to a lab that, that has the trained people that are certified to be able to provide the tests. Uh, don't take a chance on that from, from a, a novice standpoint. And I don't know if Ralph, if you've got anything to add on to that. Well, it's, it's, you know, if you do, if you are taking an at-home test, read the instructions, read the instructions for use. Um, there may be things in there that you, you didn't, they weren't obvious to you the first time. You know, we, we don't discourage the use of at-home tests. They're, they're really inexpensive. They're, well, they're available as long as there's not too much demand. Um, as soon as demand spikes, then they're gone, um, which is, that's one of the challenges that, that we have to, to maintain. But really do, really, you know, if you, get, if you take an at-home test, read the instructions, make sure you really understand them. A lot of them have videos you can go look at on the web to show exactly how they're doing. How are they standing up that little tube? Like, how are they making sure that little tube doesn't fall over? And how are they, you know, how many times do you got really have to turn it in the little tube to get the, all the sample off of the swab? And like, no, just, just really know those things when you do your at-home tests, you know, or, or if you can't, and there's people that can't, they can't do it. They either can't read the instructions or they don't have the, the physical capacity to perform a test, you know, they, that, that that's, that's an area where, you know, where a, a lab like ours can help because we do have the people that can go and, and help you do that. But whatever you do, read the instructions uh, and, and stay safe, you know? One of the Thank things you. I think is important is that some of the senior citizens, when they get this uh, little tube, it takes a lot of pressure that some people don't have to put the six or five drops into the little well uh, for it to be effective. And uh, that's, that's, that's the concern that you have when you get uh, at-home tests, uh, and especially for accuracy. Right, because if you don't have a good sample, then you don't have a good test outcome. So what is the message that you want to give to New Mexicans and including folks in power in New Mexico that have the wherewithal to keep us safe? Well, what I'd, I'd say is that we love New Mexico. This is our home. 
This is our community. Uh, these are our friends. These are our our family members that need help. Uh, and we're here to help as many people as we can, as we grow, to help the entire state. And we would like to be able to have people reach out to us at Net Medical if they do have a specific need, and we'll help them with some type of community testing uh, that that uh, uh, we can work out, you know, something with them. But what I would say for the people who have the um, authority, the power to make things change, think about us New Mexicans. We may be scared, some of us. Uh, we may be concerned that we're going to get this next. Uh, we may not know what to do. Um, help us with that. Um, you know, emphasize the program because, you know, just to say it's going from a pandemic to an endemic means that, uh, hey, for the last three years, we're done. Uh, no, we see this coming back every three months, summer, winter, fall, and, and, and the four seasons, you know? So if we can get some some help from the people who have the authority to do that, um, I'm reaching out to them and saying, I'm raising my hand. Um, what can we do together for the community? Thank you, Dick. I appreciate that. And again, that was Dick Gavinsky, the CEO of Net Medical. We're not quite done with the interview yet, but want to make sure that our listeners know. But Rafael, what about you? What's your message? I think what I'd want to say is we've done a good job as a state in following the science. And I feel as if we need the same thought leadership to get us out of the situation that we got into. And I feel that that's one area that we, we need more strength in, is following the science out of the situation that we're in. And to me, that's a matter of risk management in, in looking at the worst affected of us all and understanding what what happened or what is happening to those who have long COVID or this, this post-COVID kind of, of situation and really understanding what that means and what it's about. Because we certainly have the brain power in the state and we have, we have the willpower in the state to, to find a path out that is safe and to find a path out that, is, that considers everyone that's going to go along the way, not just the people that, that happen to have a good insurance plan, right? That, that happen to get the coverage, right? It can't, it can't be the case that, that the, the, the least able to get access to care are the ones that are, are, are going to figure out whether or not the guess was right, that we're, that, that COVID is over. Right. And I don't, I just don't, I don't believe it. Uh, for an, I just don't believe it for an instant that it is completely over. I think there's more to know. And I think New Mexico should be a leader in figuring out what we don't know and how to deal with it and how to move forward in the future safely and take all of the New Mexicans with it. Thank you, Rafael Rubio, president of Net Medical. Dick, where can people get information about Net Medical? How do we find you? The best way to find us is on the website for the state of New Mexico's COVID locations. Uh, that's where all of the locations that provide testing are found, including Net Medical. 
the other way is to look at our website, thatmedical.com. Uh, the other thing is uh, that we have a phone number uh, for, for the lab, or uh, you can call me at 505-255-1999, and my extension is 300. I'll talk to you. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that either of you would like to add before we end our interview? Well, stay safe, New Mexico. I know no one likes it, but if, you, if you're in a crowded space, wear a respirator or a mask of some kind, uh, take precautions and just stay safe for this holiday season. What I would say is that uh, the experts at the CDC have warned that heightened travel and indoor activity uh, for family gatherings at uh, Christmas and New Year's uh, will accelerate the spread of not only just COVID, but it will accelerate the spread of uh, the flu, uh, as we have seen, and in kids and the seniors uh, RSV, and, you know, try to stay out of the hospital and uh, make sure that uh, you pay attention to your conditions. Thank you so much. Again, Dick Davinsky, CEO of Net Medical. Thank you, Rafael Rubio, president of Net Medical. Thank you for offering the services that you have been offering to New Mexicans through this pandemic. Thank you. Thanks, Roberta. Thanks, Roberta. Thank you, Dick Gobatsky and Rafael Rubio of Net Medical for speaking with us this evening. To find other PCR testing sites, visit the New Mexico Department of Health's locator at cvprovider.nmhealth.org. Again, that's cvprovider.nmhealth.org. Free and affordable PCR testing is an essential component of staying healthy and not spreading COVID-19. With the news of free community-based PCR testing sites either leaving the state and not having other community-based contractors across New Mexico, community members are concerned about what this can mean during a time that RSV, flus, and COVID are spreading and hospitals are at or over capacity. Because of this, Luis Peña started a petition on change.org, asking the state of New Mexico to keep free and community testing in place for just a few more months. Here's DJ's Roberta Rael speaking with Luis Peña. This is Roberta Rael and I am with Generation Justice. I am so pleased this evening to be able to have a conversation with Luis Peña. Luis is a community member in Rio Riva County uh, Luis has been involved in many community efforts and um, is a Norteño bien hecho. And so I want to welcome you, Luis, to Generation Justice. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Luis, go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself, please. Um, I've lived in northern New Mexico all my life. Uh, my family has deep roots in the area. And uh, as you mentioned, I've been very active in my community, getting involved in different issues. Um, the uh, issue that we're going to discuss around uh, COVID-19 and PCR testing, um, I, I come through it through the lens as a community member and, uh, you know, just uh, someone who's trying to keep his family safe. Thank you so much, Luis. So let's talk about the petition. Um, you started a petition on change.org 
about a week ago, asking for there to be more uh, or extended PCR testing and maybe community testing for PCR testing available in New Mexico. I'd love to hear a little bit more about why this was so important to you that you wanted to start this petition. That's exactly right. I need to back up a little and go back to August. Um, in August, the curative testing center that was at Northern New Mexico College shut down. And I initially reached out to my local lawmakers, uh, including Senator Leo Jaramillo. And at the time, he had reached out to some local officials, and they were able to at least reintroduce a Tuesday and Thursday van uh, that was based out of the Española City Hall. And that, that at least met the needs that was left after they closed the Northern New Mexico College location. Um, at that point, we had my family and I had started going to the White Rock location, which offered the rapid two-hour PCR testing, uh, which was an advantage because we would get our results almost immediately if we felt that we had COVID-like symptoms. So going back to a couple of weeks ago, I went for a test prior to the Thanksgiving Day holiday and I was told by the uh, local testing center staff that they were actually going to close down at the end of December. And so at that point, I reinitiated the conversation through email uh, to my local lawmakers and asked if this was true and if they could verify. At that point, I was put in touch with uh, Acting Secretary Scrace from the Department of Health. And in his uh, statement to me, he indicated that two antigen tests were a reasonable replacement for PCR testing. And so instead of feeling helpless and, you know, you know, kind of just being angry about the situation, I went to change.org and I started a petition and it's been circulating now for a little over a week. Uh, it's got a little 300 signatures. And what I'm hoping to do is draw attention not only to the petition, but the uh, importance of the petition and what a decision to move away from PCR means to the most vulnerable in northern in New Mexico and in particular northern New Mexico. Luis, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, why is PCR testing from your lived experience an important instrument or tool to use during this phase of the pandemic? I can relate two stories uh, from personal experience. Uh, the first is my father passed away from liver cancer in February of this year. So and prior to that, thank, thank you. Prior to that, you know, um, we had, had been pretty strict about, you know, our, uh, our quarantine practices. Uh, we were very careful going out into public. Uh, we didn't take any unnecessary risks. Uh, knowing that my dad was immunocompromised, <clears throat> as well as other members in the family. So during his uh, services, I contracted COVID. And the way it first man manifested was as a scratchy throat. And so I had uh, received a couple of the orange and white antigen tests from the U.S. Postal Service. And I took one on the first day that I felt that I had a scratchy throat and it came up negative. The next morning, I took another one, and it came up negative as well. So I went to the local curative site and uh, took a full PCR. Uh, within a couple of days, I got my results back that I was positive. At that point, I'd already infected uh, members of my family. 
And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was hard because the entire house had to quarantine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all had to take time off of work and school. And, you know, all in all, it was just a very, very difficult position to put my wife in. She was the only person in our household that did not test positive. And so she was forced to try to kind of balance her, her work life with caring for three individuals in the house that had COVID and tiptoe around not getting COVID herself. So that's the first example that I'll give. The second example is a few weeks after that, again, with the same uh, orange and white antigen test that you can get from uh, the U.S. Postal Service. My mom tested herself twice. They came up negative. She took a PCR. Same thing, uh, came back positive. And at that point, she had already infected a couple people. And so... While I do realize that the antigen test can be effective, I would have liked to have heard Secretary Scrace acknowledge that not all antigen kits are the same. And in addition to that, I do not believe that the antigen tests have the ability to detect uh, different strains of the virus as it mutates. And so my concern is that without free and easily accessible community-wide PCR testing, uh, we, we can see more spread of the virus than is necessary. Thank you so much, Luis. And again, um, my sincerest condolences to the loss in your family. Thank you. I'd like you to talk a little bit about, if you can, the difference between going to like a tricor or you know, some other, the hospital, the the urgent care to try to get a PCR versus community-based testing where like with curative, and I think there's possibly other contractors too that have vans that are in different parts of the state, different, different communities. You know, sometimes it's a professional who's actually administering the test. Sometimes it's you administering the test but in front of a professional. I'd like to just have you talk a little bit about that uh, related to your petition. Okay. So in the two years that Curative ran the PCR testing at Northern New Mexico College, uh, it was outdoors. They had a kiosk. And Mm -hmm. what I liked about that testing environment is that for the most part, you were outdoors. Mm -hmm. And so there were times where we would go to test and it was obvious to us that the people in front of us and the people behind us in line uh, were already positive with COVID. And being that we were outdoors and everybody was masked and there was the social distancing, there was a level of safety that you could count on in going to go get a PCR test. Now, after they closed the Northern New Mexico college site um, and they moved to the, the van, again, you know, it was outdoors. The site that we were going to in White Rock, although it was indoors, um, you know, they had limited access, so you can only let in one or two people at a time. Um, and it, it's a single function service. You're going in there to get tested for COVID-19. You know, you're not going there to submit, you know, blood tests for, you know, any other reason. You're not going to uh, share space with people that may be there for a, you know, emergency room visit. And so the concern that I have in offloading PCR testing either to labs or to urgent care facilities is that now you're sharing space and close proximity with people that may also be, 
you know, either COVID positive or have flu or have RSV. And you end up in a situation where you're going to just go get tested to make sure you don't have COVID. And you may very well get COVID while going to go get tested. And in addition to that, you know, although I have private insurance through my employer, uh, I did not have to pay a, uh, a copay to get tested because most of the cost was covered by my insurance. Um, if we move to the model where now it's going to cost me, let's say, $35 for four members of my family to get tested. Well, now there may be a situation where maybe only one of us gets tested or maybe two of us gets tested. And, you know, you never know um, who in the family has contracted the virus and who has not based on their exposure. I have two children that go to two different schools and my wife and I work in two different work environments. And so our level of exposure uh, varies from person to person in the family. Yet at the end of the day, we eat around the same table. So those are the concerns I have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. What is your message to elected officials and policymakers related to the petition? My message would be that it seems disingenuous to roll out a service and have it freely accessible for two years, only to pull the rug out from under the people right in the middle of a triple pandemic. Um, it would seem to me that they could easily extend this at least another three to six months until we're out of flu season and have some sort of contingency plan that goes beyond, you know, just the labs or the urgent care uh, visits and have some other type of regional, you know, PCR testing center. Okay, so maybe it's not going to be 15 minutes from my house. Maybe it's going to be, you know, a little bit farther than that. That's fine. But we can't go from, you know, one extreme to the next is where, okay, well, we have local, you know, curative PCR testing centers. And now we have, you know, nothing save for, you know, these, these um, multi-purpose environments. So it's, uh, yeah, I guess that's what my message would be. Thank you so much. Where can people go to find your petition? They can go to change.org and the title of the petition is Extend Free and Accessible Community COVID-19 PCR Testing for New Mexico. Thank you. What else would you like to add, Luis? I think the petition is important to show that there is a continued need for curative testing. Um, if you take a time to take a look at some of the comments that people are leaving, uh, it counters the narrative that most of the population have moved on. There are people that do have concerns and there are not very many spaces that have been available for people to voice these concerns at a community level. Um, I feel like there's a desire to, I guess, move on. And the petition shows that there are people that still have concerns. Um, the pandemic is not over and efforts to declare it at an end, it's, it's a burden on the poor and most vulnerable in our state. And I think that needs to be acknowledged. Um, like I mentioned, I have several immunocompromised relatives and I need to protect them at all costs. And something as simple as a preventative test, in my opinion, is, is not a extreme request. Thank you so much, Luis. Luis, was there anything um, else that I missed or didn't um, ask you that you wished I would have? We have time that we can add. One thing I did want to add is that Espanola is going through, uh, has been 
you know, Espanol is always in some sort of crisis, but right now they closed the uh, Santa Clara apartments, which was one of the few low-income housing projects in the area without a plan to rehouse those residents. And in addition to that, Espanola, the city of Espanola recently passed some strict policies, you know, basically criminal, criminalizing the unhoused. You know, we've got this triple pandemic. We've got, you know, affordable housing being closed. And now we have these policies that are criminalizing people that don't have a place to go. It feels like we're expendable. You know, it feels like um, if the intent of these policies were to harm the most vulnerable people, you know, Espanola is at ground zero and, and a lot of other impoverished communities throughout New Mexico. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that all this is happening at the same time. Thank you so much. I appreciate you adding to the broader picture of uh, services changing and or being eliminated. And again, your your call to action for the most vulnerable in our community of New Mexico. We really appreciate you being on Generation Justice this evening with us. We appreciate your love for New Mexico and putting your love for New Mexico into action. Thank you. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about the petition started by Luis Peña, visit change.org. That's change.org. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of information and community action. We'd like to thank our guests, Ned Medicals, Dick Kowatsky, and Rafael Rubio. And thank you to community member Luis Peña. Tonight's Hour of Radio was produced by Roberta Rael, who also conducted tonight's interviews, and myself, Barbara Ramirez, with production assistance from Sunandito Santano. Find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Congalma Health Foundation, the New Mexico Department of Health, Better Together, Infectious Disease Bureau, and Office of School and Adolescent Health, as well as the City of Albuquerque, Race Forward, Media Justice, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Buenas noches, Nuevo México. And remember, it's up to us to keep each other safe.